Welcome to the Mormon to Medium podcast, where we'll talk about spirituality, the paranormal, religion, and my journey going from Mormon to medium. I'm Nanette Ride. Thanks for listening. Now let's go have some fun. Don't be afraid. Welcome to the Mormon to Medium podcast. This is our fifth recording. We are your hosts, <laughs> Nanette and my hot husband, okay. Brad. Way, way too much loud laughter there. We can't even use that. It's staying. <laughs> this is a professional podcast, I'll have you know. It's so not. <laughs> Today, we are continuing our discussion about the Mormon pioneers and the Native Americans that were here in Utah and how uh, they were actually human trafficked. And we have so much more information and stories, and we actually visited some historical sites here in Utah and got some more information from local people too. Yes, we did. And look, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, I highly recommend jumping back uh, just one week and listening to that one because it sets this up and this is really going to be a kind of a continuation. But there will be enough content here that's separate that you'll be fine if you don't want to. Um, but I don't want anyone to be lost because there's some good foundational work there. But you will have no idea what banana bread means. That's true. That is valid. <laughs> And, and Nan does make a good banana bread. <laughs> and a shout out to our listener that made our meme. <laughs> yeah. That made me laugh so hard. <laughs> yeah. Thank you out there, Luckbox. We appreciate uh, your your input and your support throughout this whole time. So Nan mentioned we visited a couple more places regarding the human trafficking, some historical sites. We actually went to the home of Jacob Hamblin, which is still here in Southern Utah. It is actually on the National Historic Register, and it is maintained by the LDS Church, the Mormons, as a proselyting site. So we actually went there to get their take. We figured if anybody knew about the relationship with the Indians, it'd be the missionaries who actually worked at the Jacob Hamblin house because that was his big deal. Well, and Jacob Hamblin also was at um, Pipe Springs, and had this relationship so-called with the Indians, but also had some children that he had bought. And he was also involved with the taking care of the children at the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So we had lots of questions. So we decided, you know, the missionaries at the Jacob Hamlin home might have some insight. We met a really super nice man. Yeah, really nice guy. So what happens at, at places like this is they will assign um, retired couples typically to be the missionaries at some of these historical sites. So you, you know, elderly man, his wife, and they will lead tours and talk about what's going on. Interestingly enough, sidebar, um, when we started to walk into the Jacob Hamlin home, I had this, this flash in my head of the whole upstairs full of beds and lots of kids. I never knew the other two times or three times that we've been to the Jacob Hamlin home, how many kids Jacob Hamlin had. And, and we found out on this tour, which made so much sense that they'd need so many beds upstairs. He had over 12 in that house. And that's pre 
Mountain Meadows Massacre. He had 24 total, but that was down in Pipe Springs. He had five wives, including his fourth wife, which was a Native American woman. Fourth wife, the, the Native American was Louisa Benelli, I believe is the name. Was that correct? That's what it looks like. So Louisa Benelli. So a lot of kids in the upstairs house. And when you go in, it's separated. It looks like a great room. And then the next room over just has some beds in it. So I think what would happen is you'd go in there and you naturally go, oh, this is where they would have slept because that's where the beds are, right? Definitely, but not enough beds for 12 kids. (laughs) Yeah. And that was just the ones that were living there. There were 24 children total, right? Yeah, because he had so many kids with each wife. Yeah, four wives, 24 kids. You do the math. They're uh, replenishing the earth. Had five wives. The fifth one was Eliza. Oh, that might be why our street is called Five Wives. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I know in that house, um, they had 12 kids, but that's just from the two wives that he had. The first wife actually stayed back back back. east so jacob hamlin's like hey guess what honey i'm a mormon now and she was like okay i guess we're mormons and she moved around a couple of times because the mormons you know got chased out of different states and then he said hey guess what honey we're gonna go to utah and she's like f you dude i'm not leaving i'm out of here go ahead and so hamlin took the kids and left okay so first wife was sick and tired of all the persecution, all the stuff that going on with the church. So she's done. Yep. She stayed back. They had four kids. So he takes the four kids. Yep. Which that would be so crazy that a mom leaves her four kids. I don't get it. Yeah. I I think there's probably more to that story because the only place we really get that history is from LDS documents and whatnot. That'd be a fun rabbit hole to crawl in and see if there's any more information on it. There's so many rabbit holes though. I mean, just over the last week, you've jumped into so many rabbit holes. It's like, what? Utah history is fascinating. (laughs) So, okay. Jacob Hamlin has the four kids. Then he meets his second wife. Um, She can't have children, but she'd been married to a man that had kids already. And she was taking care of those kids, but he died. The missionary told us that he told her not to worry that she would be able to have children. And so together, they had five more. Now, Jacob Hamblin, um, not only does he have a home here in St. George, but he's also associated with Pipe Springs and also had a lot to do with the Mountain Meadows Massacre and taking the children after the massacre and um, bringing them into his home and then farming them out to different Mormon families. Well, he actually had a hand in telling the wagon train folks that they should go through Mountain Meadows because that was a good place to graze their animals. Yeah, it was a really, really rich group. Lots and lots of stuff. We even found out that there was a racehorse. Yeah, a racehorse that the Mormons kept and then would race. And so it was like One-Eyed something or other was the name of the horse. I'll have to look Blaze. it up. One-Eyed Blaze, yep. yeah. <laughs> and they kept the horse and used it as a racehorse instead of going, oh, yeah, this is uh, the horse from this family. We How do we get it that back we, to its owner? We just slaughtered, yeah. Oh, wait, we can't give it back. We killed them. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, um, we digress. We actually went to the Jacob Hamblin home because we thought, look, let's see if there's any more information out there about this. I mean, we've been scouring the Internet, obviously, and you can find pretty much anything you need out there. But we wanted to give, uh, you know, history a chance. It was interesting because the night before we went over there, we were reading some of the court transcripts that happened 20 years later 
after the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And Jacob Hamblin was one of the people that we were reading all of his transcripts. His testimony. Yeah. And he was very evasive. Like He was extremely evasive with his answers. Yeah. That you could you could very much see the animosity between the Mormons and the federal government, which wasn't a secret ever. There was always that that strong contention. In fact, a lot of the times with the dealings with the Native Americans, Brigham Young and the other Indian affairs people would give reports that weren't entirely accurate because Brigham Young's stance on the government was we want to keep them as far away from us as possible. Which would allow them to do whatever they want to with the Native Americans because nobody's going to tell. Well, and with polygamy and with whatever else they they wanted to do. Um, So at the Jacob Hamblin home, though, Mm -hmm. we got to talk to this senior missionary and we thought this would be an opportunity for if anybody knows about this history of this man and what was going on, it would be someone who was working at this historical site, right? Well, we wanted to ask in particular about the Native American children that he had, quote unquote, adopted and his okay the reason she does quotes <laughs> is because if you read any of the mormon articles on jacob hamblin it always talks about jacob's adopted native american children but if you read anything else including diaries and also native american statements these children were trafficked yeah they were 100 percent purchased in fact i've got a story about him purchasing a couple that we're going to talk about. You had actually said that to the missionary, that the little boy was purchased for a gun and what else? Oh, God damn it, man. (laughs) Anyway, it it was, it was like a gun and some bullets and something else. And the boy was purchased. So, um, that's not an adoption. Okay. It was a gun, a blanket and some ammunition. And he was a six year old boy. Yeah. That bothered me. So yeah, I asked him, you know, now, Jacob bought children from Native Americans, right? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he did, I guess. And I said, well, how does, that, how does that play together with being a missionary to these people when you're actually purchasing them as property? And it was very obvious that he'd been given a script. And the script was, don't talk about human slave trade. And don't talk about Mountain Meadows because we asked about the children from Mountain Meadows as well going to the Hamblin Ranch. He goes, yeah, yeah, they were taken there. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, he pushed it right under the rug. But later on, it reminded me of the court transcript of Jacob Hamblin. He was very evasive. But later on, as we kind of talked a little bit more, he would drop in like little answers like, yeah, that's what happened. But yeah. And, and look, we were being very respectful. We weren't just throwing this out. We listened to their tour and it was just questions that would flow naturally into the conversation. So it wasn't like we went there and were being confrontational or being rude. We literally were just. No, it was on really a, nice. Yeah, we were on a fact finding mission and, and he helped us to understand that the church doesn't want to talk about any of that. Well, and we did preface everything that we had some questions and even invited us to go through a tour with another group. And we said, no, we have some questions that we'd rather just ask you. So we just waited and kind of hung back. And then he, he was very gracious and very nice, but he knew a little bit more than what he was being allowed to say. And he knew it. So very interesting. But we did find out about the fort that we didn't know about before. Yeah, they had built a fort here. Well, here's the thing that 
we don't know a lot about is anytime the Mormons would start a new community, they would set up a fort. Um, in fact, that was one of the first things they did when they went into the Salt Lake Valley. People don't hear about that. They hear about the Mormons coming in and settling, but they actually had a fort that covered 40 acres in Salt Lake. Now, forts are another thing that got them into a little bit of trouble. When they were first in Salt Lake, uh, the Native Americans were like, okay, that's cool, whatever. That's kind of common ground. You know, you can do your thing. Where the problem started was when they moved south into the Utah County area, Provo specifically, and the Mormons actually built a fort in Provo that was smack dab in the center of this ancient campground that several different tribes would use and they would hunt in the area and they would fish. And the Mormons came in and said, this is a great spot. We're going to build our fort here. And that's really where their problems and their aggressions between the Native Americans and the pioneers started. So interestingly, <laughs> you, you all know I talk about um, Carmel a lot and how she's a bitch. She always gets paid. <laughs> so the fort in Santa Clara, we went down there. We drove down there. And it's just down the road from the Jacob Hamblin home. Yeah, there's not anything left. There's not some really. rocks. It's just a little memorial, which is odd. It was built in 1855 to 56. Right in there, it took him about a year to build it. But they had like everyone that was living down there by the the river. And if you know anything about this area, those rivers flood. So interesting. Yeah, they're, you know, they're kind of on this cycle, right? They had a flood, what, 20 years ago that actually the, knocked houses into the river. Into the and river. that's in the modern days. Yep, they did. 100%. So why would you bring up floods? Well, because Mountain Meadows um, happened in 1857. Okay. And so five years later, they had such a horrible rainstorm. It lasted for six weeks and everything was being washed down towards this fort and the river flooded and it completely washed the fort away. So that was the fort that we went and and saw. So five years later, five years later. And so this is where Jacob Hamlin and his family and everybody were staying. And it was literally, they lost everything. They didn't lose any lives. Thank goodness. But they lost everything. And so that was um, the precursor to him building the Jacob Hamblin home that we went and visited. Yeah. And it actually says on the plaque there by the fort that due to um, the importance of his new position, he needed to build a new home. So his new position, he became the president over the Native American mission. So the reason Jacob Hamblin was actually in the South was he was assigned by Brigham Young to be a missionary to the Native Americans because the Mormons believed the Native Americans were Lamanites. And Lamanites are a group of people who are talked about in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just shocking to me because they are, but then the people in Mexico are also considered Lamanites, but they're different people. Yeah. You know, you've got Native Americans and then you have uh, Mexican people, but but like they're completely different cultures and different people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Native Americans, Mexicans, South Americans, it doesn't matter. They lump them in. If your skin is brown, you're a Lamanite. Okay. (laughs) Just absurd. No, no. Your skin is brown. You're a Lamanite. Just just accept it, man. So the <laughs> the Lamanites were, um, you know, part of the people who came to the Americas from Israel and settled here, according to the Book of Mormon. But, you know, now they're not teaching the Book of Mormon as a literal history, though. 
That's true. Which when Nan and I were young, this was considered the most correct book on earth. It was a literal history. There is nothing in this that is not historically accurate. And that's what we were taught from the time I was old enough to hear lessons about the Book of Mormon until I left the church. It was still a literal history. But now they're saying, no, 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 no. This is just an interpretation yeah, the gaslighting is unreal. And not to mention the Urim and Thummim that we were always taught that they would have to put this breastplate on or Joseph Smith would put this breastplate on in order to translate. And now all of a sudden it's a rock in a hat. Like I Well, and if you brought up rocks in a hat before, oh boy, let the lynching begin because that was not how the Book of Mormon was translated. But now you've got the president of the church who's saying, this is what it looked like. Kind of like a phone. When you can't see it, you have to put your head close to it in the dark. And this is what he did in the hat. I remember, though, as a kid, they were saying that um, he was like a, a treasure finder. He would he would look for treasure on people's properties and stuff. And that's where he used the rock in the hat was in that. And I was like, that's really stupid. Like, even as a kid, I'm like, that's really stupid. I wouldn't believe anybody that did something like that. And now all of a sudden he translated in the rock in the hat. I don't know. Think about this. I, I think some people have gifts for things like that. Absolutely. And, and there is there. Look, there you could go. Look, Joseph Smith had some gifts for this, or he was just a complete grifter. And a lot of people go, well, he was a grifter, but you people use divining rods people use um, rocks to focus their energy and their thoughts i mean your medium you should be able to go yeah this potentially could have happened there could be something to it right yes but you don't change your story do you know what i'm saying like either this happened or it didn't happen either you had a, a vision not eight you're jumping from divining and finding things all the way to the first vision. Those aren't connected. I, we're, we've got to talk to you about those in separate instances. Oh, so people use divining rods all the time to find water and wells, right? It's true, and that works. People will yes. hire them to go, hey, find my well, and they would come out and they would find the water and people would dig and there would be water. But Joseph didn't. Yeah, I he guess that's... a rock and hat. Same kind of concept, no. though. The only difference is Joseph never found treasure. Exactly, so because was it doesn't he, work. So was he a grifter? How do you know it doesn't work? Because you never found anything. <laughs> now, I have heard probably hundreds of stories that when people pray because they lost their car keys, that they found them. What does that have to do with a rock and a hat? Divination. It's all about the divination. They prayed and okay. were, were, were. You, ju- you jumped down this rabbit hole, Hoser. So we went, <laughs> we went to Mexican food last night. It's my favorite food in the whole wide world. And we haven't been in a long time. And I went, I was carrying the tab because they were so busy. We were just going to go to the front and pay. And the card, our credit card fell out of the little um, booklet. Nan threw it. Yeah, whatever. It wasn't in there very good, and it fell, and I heard it fall. It wasn't in there good? So did you have to stick it in farther? Stop. We don't have time for your <laughs> shit. God, you're 14 again. <laughs> Anyways, we couldn't find it anywhere. Everybody was on a couple of tables, was looking all over the floor, looking for it, and I mean... We created a very general disruption in the entire restaurant. <laughs> but then what happened? Nan found it, because she was like... I have a vision that it's underneath this chair. And I'm like, man, it can't even get under there. There's not a crack. It's under the chair. Just move it. It wasn't a chair. It was a booth. And yeah. you had to lift the whole booth to get up underneath there. And it was under there. It was sure shit. There it was underneath the bench. So don't tell me divination doesn't work. 
I didn't say divination doesn't work. I'm saying the rock in the hat is bullshit. No, that's what I'm saying. no, that's just part of the divination process. No. You tell me anybody else that does a rock in a hat on anything, anywhere. Just bring what, it up. What about what about different seer stones and peep stones that come with natural holes in them, and they're supposed to allow you to see things beyond this realm? There are a, <laughs> there are thousands you, of myths and legends about it. You are ethically failing to convince me on this. So well, keep moving. I, I'm just saying that maybe Joseph had some talents and some gifts. You know, what? I have no doubt that he had some talents and some gifts. He just didn't know how to use them, and he abused them, and he was greedy. The end. Keep going. Wow, I just got dismissed. Like she's not even going to look at this. <laughs> no, you know, this is because a long, we have better things to look at. This is a long way off from Jacob Hamlin and exactly. human Keep trafficking. Going. We're we're never going to finish. <laughs> you know, it's not about finishing. It's about actually the process. Life is not a destination; it's a journey. No, life is a highway. No, I'm not going to ride that. Life's a life's a journey. Um. All right. So wherever we were. We'll back up. So Jacob Hamblin had a shitload of wives and he, he had those wives and had a shitload of children and he had this big ass house, but not as big and fancy as Brigham Young's house because there's also a Brigham Young house here in St. George. And damn, that thing is nice. Like, All his houses are nice. I can't even imagine, you know, you've got this, this dude who has this complete mansion in the middle of St. George. Meanwhile, the Native Americans who are living here are literally dying of starvation and they're freezing to death in the winter. And this guy has this opulent home in the middle of the area. And the only reason why they were starving and freezing to death was because the Mormon pioneers came in and took their resources from them and left them with nothing and then expected them to prosper when they had been for forever. Well, you're right. And the ecosystem was very much disturbed when the Mormons came in and they would settle. The hunting grounds changed. The watering holes changed. Everything was different for them. Do you know how the Mormons tried to help with that? No. How? So they actually created Indian farms. And it was kind of like an early reservation concept um, here in Utah. And and look, I'm going to give Brigham Young a little bit of credit here. He did say that it was cheaper and easier to feed the Indians than it was to fight the Indians. So they didn't lose the life. They didn't lose the property if they befriended the Indians. So that was kind of his whole philosophy. Now, I think there might've been some ulterior motives there um, because later it was said that he used them basically as his personal assassins or troublemakers. But um, we can come to that later. Essentially though, They created these farms and their whole idea was to teach the Native Americans how to farm their food like the white people did rather than going out and hunting and gathering. Because they didn't know how to grow anything before the white people came along. They had different styles of farming that didn't produce the number of crops that the settlers could do. And so they had these Indians start these farms and they would have them overseen by one of the pioneers teaching them how to farm like a white person does. They had farms all across the uh, state. It started with three and then they added a couple more. Did you know there was actually one of these farms at the mouth of Spanish Fork Canyon? That explains a lot about the energy in that area. (laughs) Isn't it crazy though? I I had Uh, no idea. I lived there all my life and had no idea there was an Indian farm there. That's crazy. 
Yeah. So that was one of the things that they did try to do is, Hey, let's teach them since we're screwing up all of their stuff, let's teach them how to do it like this. So it's not so bad, but because the Mormons took all the best land, the Indian farms did not do well. Now, was there any repercussions if they didn't want to show up and farm every day? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. But I know that not every tribe jumped in on that idea. Should we jump back into the uh, slave trade? Yes. Okay. So, look, that was a long way around to get back to where we started. But when we start looking at the human trafficking in Utah, there are a few different reasons people did it. A lot of the Mormons believed that they were doing it to help the natives, right? For a couple of reasons. One, they would say, hey, these native slave traders will kill the children if we don't buy them. There was another thought that said, if we don't purchase these children, they're going to die of starvation because the Indians don't have anything because they're such lowly, hideous creatures. So they were saving them that way. Another reason that they would do them is because one of Brigham Young's big things was buy up the Lamanite children as fast as you can and convert them to God. So they were buying them to save them from their horrible ways and teach them the ways of God and baptize them into the faith. So it was really interesting how those different things worked. But there was also a play that uh, was, I'm going to just purchase this person for property or use. And there are a lot of different accounts of just that. That's the indentured servitude, right? That is the indentured servitude. Now, with this, you know, even Jacob Hamblin said that parents who brought their children would cry to see the children go, but they acted to save them from malnutrition or starvation. Um, He also acknowledged that Mormon settlement had shielded the Paiutes from the Ute, so they weren't able to have these slaving raids come down, but it exacerbated their poverty, and because the Mormons took all the land and water. That was one of the things that Jacob Hamblin actually said, well, they would be better off, but we took the land and water, but they're not getting raided by the Utes now. So it was, uh, oh, we're doing good, but yeah, we still screwed them on the other side. It's interesting to me that all of these different tribes can share the land and the water and they knew, you know, when the, the game would come through so they could hunt and things like that. And then the whites came along and took it all. So you, you have all these different tribes that could share it, even though they didn't agree with each other. And sometimes they were at war with each other, but they still shared the resources. Yeah. Well, and, and it wasn't just the Mormons who had issues and, and hostilities with the Indians, right? So at one point, have you ever heard of the Bear River Massacre, Nan? There was this Colonel Patrick Connor who was over troops, U.S. troops, so government troops here in Utah. And he had a group of volunteers and... Several different Native American tribes had gathered in the northern Utah, southern Idaho area to do a warmth dance. So essentially, they came together. They did this big ceremony to bring forth the springtime and the warmth to end this horrible, hard winter. And that was in 1863. What happened was this colonel took the army and all the Mormon volunteers, and they went up to the Bear River where this dance was taking place, the ceremony was taking place to take out a punitive action on the Indians. Why? Well, they had decided that the only way to have peace with the Indians was to show them how much stronger we were and to show them that thieving and killing were not permitted. And so they were going to kill anyone who had done any of those things. Well, 
they just went to Bear River and indiscriminately killed men, women, children. And uh, then they came back and said, yep, we're great heroes. Now, the Mormons... That's a lot hypocritical. Yeah. It, it was... Yeah. It's sad. It's just sad. Um, the Mormons, after that massacre, actually went through the killing fields looking for children who might still be alive. Um, and one story talks about two little boys and one little girl who had eight flesh wounds. They took them into the village and gave the children good homes. So, you know, we came and killed everyone, but we're going to take you in. Again, religious beliefs inspired a lot of the purchase of these kids. Brigham Young observed that those who purchased a child had unparalleled opportunity to teach them the gospel. Wow. Yep. Have you ever heard the name Wilford Woodruff? Definitely. So there's a story of him buying a Paiute boy for $40 to educate him and prepare his mind that he may someday be useful in preaching to his tribe. So he bought this kid from the tribe to teach him the Mormon ways and then send him back to the tribe to teach them the Mormon ways. And he actually thought the tribe would accept him back. Yep. (laughs) Jacob Hamblin bought a 10 year old boy because he says, as soon as I saw the boy, the spirit said to me, take that lad home with you. That is part of your mission here. So that's two that Jacob Hamlin did. Yep. That's two that we have record of just from this article so far. But so one, a six year old boy, one, a 10 year old boy. And he was, you know, wow. pushed by the spirit to purchase that particular kid. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about others buying the children because they thought, you know, they were going to convert them to white man ways. Right. Um, here's a name. Have you ever heard the name Ezra T. Benson? Definitely. Where have you heard that before? Like a prophet? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ezra Taft Benson was one of the presidents of the LDS church. So his great grandpa was also named Ezra T. Benson. Now, He would preach. He said, it's our duty, brethren and sisters, to go to work and bring these natives to an understanding of the principles of civilization. In short season, we shall be rewarded for all that we do to civilize this lost and fallen race. So it wasn't about the the Native Americans. It was about them getting blessings, quote unquote. Yep. And they would get their blessings by converting the lost and fallen race, right? Here's another name that might be familiar to you. Have you heard the name George A. Smith? George Albert Smith. Yes. Yes. So a lot of prominent names in LDS history, right? Surprise. Yeah. Well, and you see these same names coming up generation after generation leading the church, right? Yes. Is that crazy? Um, So George A. Smith bought a child to, quote, make a man out of him. Because he wasn't going to become a man without that, right? No. Nope. Absolutely not. Um, And sometimes pioneers bought them just to satisfy their emotional needs. So there are stories of women who lost babies and the men would go out and buy a native baby to replace the one that was lost. Wow. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Um, But look, indentured servants obviously help the frontier grow and survive through their labor, right? There are a couple of different quotes in here. Listen to this, Nan. Zedek Judd's Indian girl, Matilda, was, quote, very useful and handy in her work. (laughs) Under the care of Jacob Hamblin's go-shoot boy, Hamblin's livestock increased and prospered. Um, Christopher Arthur's Indian boy, Sam, was a useful helper on the farm and choring at the home. So they still used them 
for labor. They weren't just there to be children. And obviously children in those times did work. They actually had chores. They actually had to be productive with the household. But uh, a big reason for these indentured servants was literally just what it says in the label. They were servants. You know, what I find interesting too is they're calling them um, so-and-so's Indian boy, blah, 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 instead of calling him by his name. Yeah. So like he's literally property. Yeah. Well, and they would call them like, oh, that's Indian Bob or that's Indian Brad. That's Indian Nan. Yeah. It wasn't just, hey, that's Nan or Brad. That's Indian Nan. Um, They also would profit, right? So there's a story of a guy named David Boyd who claimed that he found a bannock baby laying dead in its mother's arms. And so he brought this baby and then sold it for a pony. What? So it makes you wonder, okay, did he actually find this baby dying in the mother's arms? Does that sound right? That just seems weird. Not at all. So, I mean, there's some sketchiness, I think, that took place throughout the, the community. And I'm just, I'm just speculating. I don't have facts to say yes. You know, people would kill the natives and take their babies to sell them. But I think there's a correlation there. Well, and also, you're told not to talk about it. So... You know, because you don't want to draw in the government. So keep it quiet. Right. And they made sure to take care of their investments. So there are stories of, well, here's one. There's a, a Christopher Merkley. He actually printed a newspaper notice in the Deseret News that he would liberally reward the return of his 12-year-old Paiute runaway. So kind of like the slave trade in the South, you know, if a slave ran away, people could get money to bring that slave back. These pioneers were doing the same thing. There's actually a uh, story where John D. Lee. Now, John D. Lee's a, a, a name you should recognize from Mountain Meadows. Does that? Yes, he's the one that was prosecuted 20 years later and actually killed um, for heading up Mountain Meadows. But he was he was Correct. a Patsy. He was also an adopted son of Brigham Young. Yes, he was. There's a lot of interesting sidetracks to take, right? Oh, what a wicked web we weave. Yeah, exactly. So John D. Lee, there's a story about his servant boy, Lemuel. And that's what they call him, the servant boy Lemuel, who ran away to an Indian chief. Now, Lee actually went to that chief and chastised him for not sending him home to his proper owner. And that's the quote um, that's that's in the article. It, just crazy to me. Not only did they protect their investments, right, but they would trade them back and forth. So you might not keep your indentured servant for the entire 20 years. You might, you might purchase your indentured servant and then sell them to someone else. And there are a couple of stories about that. Um, it talks about a person, prime Coleman purchased Janet and Navajo girl for a heifer, kept her until she was 12 and then sold her to a Mr. McConnell for a horse. So, Hey, I started with a gal. Now I traded up to a horse. So does her indentured servitude uh, start over? Like, you know, because they're supposed to be with them for 20 years. Does it start over? No, it should take off from where it left. Um, but that's a really interesting question. Could you imagine if they were able to just start it over? I, I'm pretty sure they would just buy up what's remaining on the contract. Um, there's a story, though, about uh, Paiute Susie is what they called her. And she lived in Dudley Levitt's home. Do you recognize the Levitt name? Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots of uh, famous Levitts in Utah. Lots we had a, a governor, ones. Mike Levitt, who was the governor here in Utah. He actually ended up being um, head of the EPA for the federal government. He had a brother who 
was a Utah, was County, a Utah attorney. County attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also the Juab County attorney before that. So Levitt's another big Utah name. Um, so Paiute Susie lived in the Levitt's home for five years and then was sold to a William Pulsifer. So they would change them back and forth. They would also give them as gifts. So there are stories about families that would board together and, you know, here, take this Indian child as, as a gift in exchange for taking such good care of me. Those poor kids. I feel bad for them. Yeah, it's super sad. But look, it wasn't always a negative thing. So in one case, they talk about this guy named James Martineau. He purchased a girl for a rifle in 1859 and intended to raise her as his own daughter. But he ended up selling her a year later. And the reason he sold her, he sold her to a person named Aaron Cherry for a rifle, noting that Cherry and his wife were lonely in their big house since their children were grown. He parted with the girl because he believed that Cherry could do better by her than I, he being rich. So he's like, look, he'll be able to take better care of this girl than I can. So he just got his investment back and said, here, you you take her because I can't give her the life that she needs. So I, I don't think they were all bad people. I think it's just like any group of people. You've got some that are a little more evil than others. You know, I get that, but you know, through the girl's eyes, she's still going to wish to be with her mom. Yeah. And that's true. And a lot of, well, here's, here's one of the things that ended up happening a lot of times is they would not remember their, their birth parents. They were taken young enough that they just didn't remember. Well, that was the plan, right? Right. Well, and they didn't know who to go back to if they ran away. Um, in fact, (laughs) do you want to hear a story? Yeah. Okay. I will tell you a story that goes right along with this. So remember how last week we talked about the story differing and changing depending on who you talk to. If you talk to the descendants of the slavers, it was a different story than the, the story from the descendants of the slaves. So here's one such. So according to Reuben Warren Allred's white descendants, Reuben had purchased Rachel Wanzitz from a band of Indians who captured her in a raid and threatened to kill her unless someone bought her. However, Clora Hackford Whitehead, who was Rachel's great granddaughter, says that Rachel survived a Mormon attack on her village. The Allreds found or stole Rachel after she and her cousin survived the raid. By one account, she was, quote, found under a wagon by the Allred family following an attack by the Mormon militia on some Indian encampments in Spanish Fork Canyon. She was crying and wounded. Whitehead said the Allreds took her with them along with the spoils of war. While she is aware of the Allreds' claim that they adored Rachel and raised her as their daughter and a sister and one of the family, Whitehead emphasizes that Rachel was always a worker. So it varies drastically based on who you talk to, right? Who's writing this history? So, you know, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. I always just think of the person that it's happening to, and it's just sad. Like, it's just sad. It's super sad. And there are lots of stories where um, children would come in and, they're terrified, right? Um, there's a story of one four-year-old who moaned for weeks and grew ill before he would accept food and make friends. Um, there's a great story about a Navajo captive named Rose Daniels. She told her children she was only five or six when she and several other girls were herding sheep in a box canyon in northern Arizona. A band of Utes 
apprehended them and tied them to a tree uh, overnight. And then in the morning, the Utes returned with scalps from a raid that they had, had done, likely on the Navajos. So they came back, they killed two of the sheep for food, and then they rode off. And Rose actually traveled behind her captor just crying, cried the whole time, hoping her mom would hear her and come and save her. Um, she ended up living with the Utes for some time, and then they actually sold her to an Indian chief who ended up selling her to a Mormon named Aaron Daniels. So... What ended up happening, though, is she remembered the trauma. She remembered how she felt, but she forgot her Navajo name. She didn't know who her parents were. And initially, she ran away several times from the Utes and trying to find her parents, but she didn't know where to go. And they would bring her back and just beat her and torture her for running away. So in her case, it was probably a good thing she ended up with a Mormon family eventually. That's so bad. But I mean, it's the, it's the different tribe. She should have been able to go back to her own tribe and her own people. But she didn't know where to go. She was taken by horseback so far away from where she right. started that she, she had no idea where to go. She didn't even know her own name. That's so sad. Well, and look, some of the kids really resisted that change. They didn't want that. And so they held on to, to a lot of their... Um, a lot of their ways. In fact, Ezra Benson admitted that uh, he found it repugnant to my feelings to have to put up with their dirty practices, admitting that his Shoshone boy yet has some of his Indian traits. He felt that the uh, boy's mind, though, was becoming clear and perceptive, and he looked forward to the day when his Indian traits would be all erased from his memory. So that was the plan all along, yeah. just to have them forget. Yep. Well, and... And like I said, that way they could save them and bring them to God. Wow. So, and I think I mentioned it on the last episode that the guardians were not required by law to share any inheritance with their Indians. So you can use that as kind of an index of how they were integrated with the family. If, you know, some of these natives received any inheritance and names and whatnot, then you knew that the family probably was like, yeah, you're a brother, a sister, a son, uh, rather than your property. But a lot of them died young. Like they didn't have the immunity to all of our diseases. And so a lot of them died young from that diphtheria, measles, all of those things that the white men brought with them that the natives had not been exposed to. Uh, it killed a lot of native Americans. Wow. And then once they grew up, Nan, um, what do you think their quality of life was then? I don't imagine that it was very good because they wouldn't have a tribe to go back to and they also wouldn't have a family to go to because they'd be released. So they probably never married. They probably um, lived in isolation until they died. Yeah, a lot of them did just that. A few indigenous men who had grown up in the Mormon households ever got married. Even the women a lot of times didn't get married. However, um, they were taken advantage of sexually. So for instance, someone might say, oh, well, I'm going to uh, marry you and you're going to be one of my wives. And they would have sex with them. There was a story of a lady who was here in the area and she ended up having a baby, obviously out of wedlock. Well, there's a problem there. She goes, well, this guy, and I can't remember his name, um, was the father. So they ended up finding this guy and bringing him back and they had a trial for him 
to see if he was the father and to see if you know there needed to be any like criminal restitution, which is, wow, they went to bat for this lady, wow, right? Wow, yeah. But he essentially just came and said, well, yeah, I stayed at that family's farm and she was uh, always coming on to me. And I actually had to change my housing location twice because she kept pestering me. And then I left. That's not my kid. She's just making up a story. And they said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. She's making this up. Okay. Uh, yep. Okay. Bring the kid in. Let's see if that looks like you. Right. That's that's one way to do it. Definitely one way to do it. So essentially, I think what we've learned in this search is that one, there was some horrible human trafficking going on in Utah during the early days of the Mormons. Two, the church very much controlled it because they passed laws making it so that no one else could continue the slave trade except for the Mormons in the state. I think we also learned that the church doesn't really like to talk about this. That was obvious when we went to the Jacob Hamlin home, right? Well, and yes. And additionally, on any of the the church information, they don't talk about Jacob Hamlin's Indian wife. You know what? That's right. And we didn't get into that. Jacob Hamlin did have an Indian wife. Yes. Yeah. So his, his third wife, her name is Eliza. Um, they had one child together and then she ran off. Eliza left her daughter to be raised by Priscilla, one of Jacob's wife, and Jacob. Okay. And she ran off with a Paiute Poyonkum. Poyonkum. Yeah. And so she obviously didn't want to be there bad enough to leave her own child. Yeah, that's interesting. So I wonder if she was also a purchase or if he came about her another way that's what's funny is there's not much information on the church side about her they don't even mention her wow at all yeah i guess well and i brought that up in the jacob hamlin home i said hey didn't he have a native american wife and the missionary said well yeah i I don't know i don't know anything about that yeah interesting right that is well and cover it up sweep it under the rug forget about it well, to, to credit of the church, they do talk about the Mormon slave trade and human trafficking on their church essays site. And they actually had a link, because I, I ended up finding that too. They ended up having a link to this article that I used to talk about some of this. But isn't it interesting that back in our time, these things were not a thing that was talked about, and it was never a subject. And now that we're in the age of information, it's out there and there's got to be a lot of CYA going on with the church. They've got to, you know, address these things in history and they've got to put it out there hoping nobody will go look for it. Right. Well, and and look, they can always say, well, this information was always there. We didn't hide anything, but there's the access to it. It wasn't accessible, you know, unless you had special permission to the BYU libraries or the big ass vault that's in the side of the mountain in Salt Lake City. You just didn't have access to any of these types of articles or information. Exactly. Sketch. Yeah, it's a little odd. But, uh, you know, thank God they've moved forward. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're actually acknowledging that some of these things happened, whether it's a, a gaslight or not. At least they're acknowledging some of these things now rather than saying, no, that never happened. That is true. Like I said in the last episode, I find it really interesting, the church's view and what they print as opposed to the government's view and what they print. 
they're two very different things. So when you're doing your research, go look at both sides and then make your decision and kind of like Brad said, the truth is always a little bit in the middle. Yep. A hundred percent. So Nan, what's your thought for this week? My thought. For Any this advice week. or thoughts based on what we've talked about? You know, there's a lot of fear and things going on out there. And all I can think of is the United States is a melting pot of every single race in the whole wide world. And we're all a bunch of mutts. So we should all see each other as spirits and not as different colored people. Um, so be patient with each other. Make more banana bread. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Get to know people and um, just show lots of love. I love that. I think that's a perfect thought to end on. I really appreciate sitting here with you, Nan. Thank you for having these hot dates with me. It was a hot date. Now for more coffee. Yeah, and work. (laughs) You guys have an awesome week, and we will see you on the other side of the veil.